0: In the poem we meet little Juan at the age of five in all his innocence with his seemingly infinite questions one big question asked a hundred different ways Juan wants to know about God and he proceeds to grill the poet what about the heron the sardines the clouds is God there and in that light the poet calls this child of five A tiny little Adam naming all his small paradise. All the while the poet knows that he himself doesn't really know what to give as an answer. As he contemplates the millions and millions of stars in the universe, the infinity of the cosmos. At the very same time before him stands Juan in his total uniqueness, only one Juan now and always Juan, who stood before the poet at the age of five full of questions and now at the age of 12 as a member of the association of sandinista children volunteering to keep watch on behalf of the revolution young juan on guard for the good of all taking on the bad ones who may in fact rob him of his future though the poet does not go there The poem, Questions by the Lake, is complex in its layering of tenses and times. Juan remembered at age five, implied at age ten, and now at age twelve, standing before the poet. The poet, always, and considering the eternal, the deep past, and Juan before birth, and now living his then future in the present, beyond which... We do not go. The poet is Ernesto Cardenal, priest, political activist, one time minister of culture in Sandinista, Nicaragua. Cardenal and his poems were an inspiration to many, to many young ones like Juan and like Eddie Lopez. Eddie Lopez was a young lad growing up in Nicaragua in what was a time of war, bombing, and violence and young Eddie had already displayed his talent for art. But like young Juan in the poem, his future was not clear. One thing was clear though. If Eddie survived, he would use his talents to speak of suffering and violence and ask many questions of himself and of us, and to ask us as viewers not to turn away and to see ahead to a better future for all Eddie Lopez received an MFA in printmaking from the University of Miami and a BFA in painting and printmaking and a BA in art history from Florida International University. Eddie Lopez is assistant professor of art at Bucknell University in Lewisburg. And his solo exhibition, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, is on display at the Haas Gallery at Bloomsburg University University through April 12th, when there will be an artist's reception and talk. We had a chance to speak by phone with Eddie Lopez about his art then and now.
1: I'm born right before the 1979 Sandinista revolution. And I mean, I'm a year old when the fighting uh, happens uh, across my home country. And in 1979, the revolution triumphs, and it overcomes Anastasio Somoza, who was a dictator in in Nicaragua. And then, as I'm growing up in the 1980s, uh, unfortunately, a civil war continues. As uh, U.S. backed contras, these rebels start fighting against the the newly formed government there. So, as a child, I'm I'm growing up in the midst of of fighting and strife. You know, and and I, and I'm there till I'm nine years old.
0: And Eddie, how did your family? Keep things more or less on an even keel. Did you go to school?
1: Yeah, so you know I did. I, you know I, I grew up in Matagalpa, which is a city in the north of the country. It's the coffee-growing region of of my home country, and it's also the areas where a lot of the fighting was happening. Thankfully, though, a lot of the fighting was occurring in the forests and in the the jungles around the main cities. So the cities themselves were fairly safe because you know they were they were protected by the the military. So going to school, going to, you know, visit family, friends within the city was not an issue. Uh, so we we felt relatively safe. I mean, you would hear, I mean, I remember at night and during the days you would hear gunfire. You would see helicopters moving through and off to fight in, in the mountains. But within the city itself, it was safe. The issue was, you know, if we wanted to go visit my sister, another sister of mine, you know, I'm, I'm from a big Catholic family of eight. So if we wanted to go visit one of my sisters who lived in a city 30 minutes away... It was always like, you, it's like checking the weather. You had to check to see whether it was safe for passage through the, through, through the mountains. And, you know, sometimes the guard would tell you, hey, today's not a good day. Other days it would be like, yeah, it should, you should be okay. But you, you would be risking it, you know, moving through from one, one city to another.
0: What were your parents' hopes for you as children? Could they see a future for you all?
1: You know, I, my parents were very good at protecting me as a child. In the turmoil, we made a little sense of what was going on. I don't think they saw a future for us in Nicaragua, given that in in the early 80s, the government passed a law, a military draft, which was aimed, of course, at old, able men over 18 to go fight in the war. Eventually, though, you know, as the fighting keeps raging, that age of 18 kind of starts dropping and you start seeing child soldiers being taken in to fight. So anybody that was strong enough to hold a rifle was taken. And this was being done not just by the government, but by, but by the rebels themselves, where they would get, you know, 12-year-old boys and send them off to war. And at that point, my parents freak out, and they decide that it's, it's time to try to get my brothers, who could potentially go off to work because they were teenagers, out, out of the country.
0: And you're going to take your own perilous journey shortly after them, right? You and your sister yes. get sent off on your own, right?
1: Yes, Yeah, you know, so the first one that actually leaves is in 1985, one of my sisters, Delia, she uh, gets sent, you know, she goes on her way undocumented through Mexico and into California. In 1986, uh, my brothers Jorge and Ramon, they're, they're, I mean, they're teenagers, 14 years old, 16, 17. They come in through Mexico also, and they, they, you know, they swim the Rio Grande to get here to the U.S., uh, and then in 87, one of my older sisters, Maida, she takes me and her son and daughter, my, niece, my nephews and niece that are my age. I'm nine years old. My niece is eight. My nephew, Ader, who's actually, you know, Ader Peralta from NPR, uh, he's five years old. And we we come undocumented through Mexico, Tijuana, and um, in, into the U.S. in June of uh, 87.
0: When you are nine, it's almost a cliche, but how terrifying, how traumatic... Was that trip? Were you on foot a lot of the time? Were you getting yeah. rides from anybody you could?
1: So that's a great. I mean, it was traumatic. You know, I mean, uh, first my my mom uh, on the ride right to the airport. I was told that we were going on a vacation, and I remember her crying. Uh, and you know, it, it, I mean, as a kid, I'm just processing that. And then we get to Mexico City. We did fly there, and then from Mexico City, uh, we made our way to Tijuana. I, I believe we we went by car. Some of the details are a little sketchy. You know, my family had paid coyotes to to help us cross the border. My brothers swam the Rio Grande, but I think somehow, thankfully, my parents were able to secure passage on car through the border for us, since we were so little. So we actually went through the border on just just by car. And I remember in one of the one of one of our first attempts, the border guard stopped us, and of course we didn't have papers, so they sent us back. And I I still remember clearly the moment, the second time we tried it, and the guard is just letting us through, you know, just waving his arms for us to just keep going. And we were not stopped that time, and we made it in.
0: And the remarkable thing for you now must be, Eddie, not only before all that has started to take place in Ukraine, and we see the yeah. the refugees in the war and so forth. But all this time that you've been in the States, and you see what's happening at our border with Mexico, and you must, what, do you relive it all again?
1: You know, oh, it's so heartbreaking, because I mean, I've been there. For me, it's, yeah, in a way, it rehashes the past. And it it, it just I mean obviously a lot of my artwork is all about this 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 want and this need for an end to suffering and an end to war and, and its causes, right, which is in mass migrations so of refugees to to seek shelter and to seek safety. I mean that's my story that, that happened to me. And to see it playing again, it, it's it's really saddening. It's upsetting. You know, it, at times I, I, I feel as though it, it, it's like this endless cycle for us as human beings to be going through these same things again. In, in some of the work that I make, I, I make references to earlier wars, earlier times when, when artists were, were also seeing that happening. And, you know, it, my hope is that there's a way to find a solution to this so that we're, we're not forcing these mass migrations, this, this desperate need to get to shelter and safety for, for people either south of the border here of course, what's happening in Ukraine and Russia.
0: And Eddie, when did you first take up a pen, a crayon, a piece of charcoal, a pencil? When did you begin to try to make sense of, was that it, the effort to get some control over what you were experiencing? Sure. I mean,
1: since I was a child, I've been drawing and making paintings as a child. My my parents recognized that I had a talent or, or a disposition for making art. And then I started tying the ideas of making art that was social and politically or that would at least tackle what's happening around me, you know, since I was a kid in Nicaragua when, when I would listen to the radio and there were these socially and politically minded songs about the revolution playing in, in the background, the murals that would adorn the streets of my home city that paid homage to, to the fallen, the martyrs of the revolution. So, I, I mean, I, I saw colors, of course, I saw form, I saw paintings being made, but all of these that were very much socially minded. So I I didn't see art just as this decorative thing on a wall. It was something that was very much politically charged. And I was doing it as a child. You know, I would start making drawings and small little paintings based on that.
0: And Eddie, what was the penetration into Nicaragua of, again, another generation of artists, but Orozco and Rivera, the Mexican muralists, did that reach you?
1: Sure, that's a great question. So I I think the things that reached most as a child uh, to me were the, the murals, and then some of those muralists definitely would be inspired by people like Diego Rivera, by 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 Orozco, and the other big thing that kind of started touching me were were poets, the, the work of poets like Ernesto Cardenal, like Yukon Belli, that I was starting to be introduced to before I, I left the country, you know, and and their poetry was definitely socially and politically minded. But so it was visual art, but also you know the written word that were starting to kind of cause me to, to think about what's happening around me or tie into me.
0: And Eddie, we want to talk about how you in your work address war and oppression and suffering, but words are important to you in your work.
1: Absolutely, you know, I, my visual work is responding to a lot of the images, archives and records from the revolution, from conflict, and a lot of photography, but I am definitely also working with written records, so books, documents, and newspapers, and just combining all of those in there. That oftentimes in the titles, and, and obviously the books that I'm working with are accounts by poets, accounts by authors, prominent authors responding to the turmoil itself. Uh, and I'll, I'll steal those titles, and you know the, the titles of my pieces themselves are based on, on that work. And, you know, the show that's currently at the Bloomsburg Gallery is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow comes from Shakespeare, from Macbeth.
0: It does sound like, because of the repetition, that this is an endless cycle, that it's going to continue tomorrow and tomorrow. So there you were as a young child growing up in Nicaragua in war situations, and now there are children we see all the time on television or online in Ukraine. So it does seem like it might never end. Is that part of the sense? It's not the whole sense, but is that part of?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, I I think that's some of the sentiment that gets captured in my work. Um, It's a, I mean, it's a clarion call to end that war and suffering, but it's also a recognition that, I mean, this sometimes feels endless, right? I mean, some of my work is referencing in my lifetime so far, I mean, I'm a a middle-aged adult now. You know, I've experienced war at the beginning of my life. Uh, I've experienced war in my teenage years. I've experienced war in my 20s in my 30s. And here we are now, and, and yet another instance of, of this pain and suffering that is being inflicted in Ukraine. So the, the title absolutely alludes to that cycle of violence and, and also a hope to break it to, for us to, to recognize that it's happening and, and find ways to, to stop it.
0: Also, in the sense of the endless nature of the cycle, Sometimes we look at some of your images and you can see the text, but you can't necessarily read it. And it's as if we could write in the name Nicaragua, we could write in Vietnam, we could write in Ukraine. We could imagine that these newspapers refer to not just your primary experience as a young one, but we could just impose whatever war of the day is on to some of those textual images you work with.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a, an astute way of reading them. You know, that it, it's one of the aims of, of the work is uh, I'm, I'm mercifully blurring out the content in them um, so that I think it's important for me not to kind of relive that experience, but in blurring them out and in, in obfuscating the images and the text and the content in them, it does add a, a, a bit of universality to them where this could be substituted for conflicts and experiences in, in other places. And uh, it it speaks to the tragedy of of this shared pain, right? It's unfortunately this um, experience that that becomes all too common and and, and obfuscating and just using colors and patterns. I think my work kind of captures that unfortunate universality of that experience.
0: And, Eddie, I was thinking a lot lately about Anna Akhmatova, the important Russian poet. There's that classic story about her Standing in line outside the prison, it was the women wanting to get to send a little message into their fathers or brothers or husbands or lovers or whoever it was inside or maybe a little bit of bread to them. And they would send hours and just hope to get a little bit of an opening. You know that one? And yeah. the woman behind her said, can you write this? And Akmatova said, yes, I can. And I wanted to ask you about both of those, not only that the artist can take on and render to the best of his or her ability as you try and as you do that horrible experience, which often is so painful that it's hard to articulate, but also the woman behind who needs the poet or needs the artist to articulate that situation.
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I won't use myself as the example, but I think of, again, these Nicaraguan greats like Cardinal, Yoconda Belli, I'll, I'll think of Carlos Mejia Godoy, who was a, a folk singer. These are individuals who wrote those popular songs, who wrote those poems, and they're they're doing it because they, they see this need to kind of galvanize our, our shared sense of humanity and compassion to try to find an end to that. And I would say, think that Akmatova, in, in, in responding to that need, it, you know, sees herself as like the person put in place to to make a response to it. So I think artists, in in many ways, we 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 see it as a as a duty, as a responsibility to to try to move our our neighbors, our fellow country people, to to move through that experience of war and suffering and hopefully, find a way to to use the artwork that we produce as a way to you know motivate a change in whatever whatever that change might seem. so yes, I mean, I think it's it's a it's a huge responsibility, but it's one that I feel like we kind of have to take on
0: and you also pointed out so wisely that in his Poetry moved to hope, and that touched you as well as the more politically oriented earlier work. And you mentioned there's hope also in tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It's not just the same old thing, right. but it also is we can look perhaps to tomorrow that there will come a time when. How do you express that without being sentimental?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. There, there's, in the writings of Cardinal, one of his works talks about nostalgia for the future. And you know we usually think of nostalgia as the past, right? But if we can just switch that, the idea that the future can bring about something better, tomorrow can be better. I think it, it it's what gives us hope, right? Over esperanza that you know what what comes tomorrow will be different. So I think it's necessary for us to believe that 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 things will get better. Because I I think that otherwise the belief that things will just continue being the same. I mean, that can be maddening, uh, that, that that would be frustrating and not something to look forward to living you know, tomorrow. But if we can think of a better tomorrow, then there's hope, right? Tomorrow hasn't happened yet, so we can still make steps today to make sure that tomorrow is, is absolutely different.
0: And you teach college students, Eddie. How do you work with them to both recognize and acknowledge rather than deny the realities around us all but also not to get despairing.
1: That's a great question and I think first and foremost recognizing the moment we're in, uh, you know, in my courses when the conflict in Ukraine started, I recognized it and we we talked about it some and then in the classes themselves I I make sure that a lot of uh, you know, we're learning about art, we're learning about design, printmaking, we see how the work that we're creating could be socially minded. So I'm a big believer in in social impact artwork, social impact design, so that students are encouraged to work with their communities and see how the artwork and design work they're doing can have a positive impact in their communities. Uh, And that's one, for me, necessary way for, for my students to be engaged in the world around them.
0: And when we visit the gallery, Eddie, will we see one body of work or a range of
1: work? So it's uh, essentially I would say it's a combination of two series. One of them is of course a response to some of the things we've lived over the last year or two. So you'll see there some of the pieces have to do because we've we've lived turmoil right over the past couple of years. Some of them have to do with responses to what happened with the coronavirus pandemic, which, you know, brought about a lot of suffering, different than, than what a war would do, but it's pain nonetheless. So some some of the prints respond to that. You'll see some of the prints responding to some of the social political conflict in this country over the past two years. I'm thinking of, for example, the storming of the capital. So there's works that deal with that. And then because, you know, my home country also over the past couple of years has gone through a lot of turmoil. Some of the pieces are in response to some of the turmoil that Nicaragua went through, you know, over the past three, four years. So it's a a play on uh, working with some of these traumatic events that have happened over the past couple of years.
0: Prints seem to be a medium that sometimes allows an artist to get an image out in many places rather than just one unique one that might wind up on a wall and never be seen. Is there something of your choice to do printmaking that meets your mission?
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, for me, the print is one of the more democratic mediums out there. I mean, it is the most democratic medium because it lets you make multiples. And then in those multiples, you can then disseminate messages. You can disseminate the artwork in more than one space. So I've always been drawn to the idea that the printmaking is the art of the multiple, that I can make more than one of these and then absolutely pass them, up, pass them about so that, you know, I can have some pieces here in, in the show in, in Bloomsburg, but at the same time, some of those pieces are in California. Some of those pieces are in North Carolina Madison, Wisconsin. So they're existing in multiple places and delivering these messages that I, that I have in more than one space.
0: And you mentioned the fact that you work with your students on design, for example, and your work has pattern and color in what you're doing and intending to do in your pieces. How does color serve
1: you? So for me, it's obviously one of the main forms that I look for, you know, as I'm starting to create these pieces and manipulate the original imagery. For me, I, oftentimes I think of my works as these color field explorations. So building upon some of the work that people like Mark Rothko were doing in the, in the 1960s and 70s and, you know, focusing on a color field, uh, print, if you will. When I, when I start building the images, that's really one of the big things that I start jumping into is how the, the color itself. So I, I make sure that I push color forward. I'm into working with saturated colors and, you know, a multitude of colors, too. I, I, I don't seek out a particular color palette. i I'd rather, in the blending and compositing of these images... The color palette is very much happenstance, but it's there. And then for me, I want things that have good contrast, good saturation, and I just work with the result that, that comes out.
0: And as we talk about your work being political and socially conscious, it's not necessarily didactic in the sense where you say, stop war now.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's just by choice. I think that one reason, you know, there's plenty of artists that I, that I love. I think of people like Sukho, who's an amazing printmaker, and her work is absolutely in your face. Stop, you know, war, stop. In her case, also, she's against eating meat, so be a vegan and stop eating meat and, and so forth. You know, I, I think I take a more reflective approach to it. I ask people to kind of stop in front of my images and just think and kind of meditate into into that experience. And I think it's simply due to the fact that I, one of the things I explore is the representation of conflict in, in print and in, in photographs and kind of processing that experience, having lived through through war and now being in a country that, for the most part, is relatively safe. So I, I try to make sense of that and, and for me, the answer has been these obfuscated images, this fog that you kind of have to, to, to walk through and, and, and see. So for, for now, it seems like that's, that's the visual answer that I'm, that I'm seeking.
0: And I love the idea that this is your show, right? And so we enter this gallery and we are surrounded by your work. So we can address images, each one as we are drawn to it. But I wonder if you feel there might be a cumulative effect that is perhaps subconscious when we're there, surrounded by these different approaches to your working these things through?
1: Yeah, there is, because, you know, at first, as you start moving in through the gallery, you start getting a sense of what's going on. Obviously, there's the artist statement that kind of explains it. But even if you skip statements, because I, I know there's are folks that feel that statements aren't necessary, and that's fine. You can just start looking at the work, and then you start kind of figuring out, hey, what, what's happening here? So you, you'll get hints here and there of what these pieces are talking to you about. And, you know, standing in the center of the gallery and then just looking around and seeing the works the ideas behind them and the emotions behind them, I think, start definitely you know, hitting home. And that I really enjoy that, where you, you can have that one piece at a time, but in seeing the accumulation, then that, that idea of the fog of war, I think, definitely comes through.
0: And just one more sense about what's going on now in Ukraine. When you do see a newspaper or you do see a TV news report or go online and come across images... Because you're a person who is familiar with the wages of war, but also because you're an artist and you can see the twisted wreckage of a building and the burned out charred walls, the geometry, the color, the pattern, and tie the two together somehow.
1: Oh absolutely. I mean for me it it hits home in in multiple ways, right? I mean I it it reminds me of you know a lot of the homes and buildings right after the the harshest fighting in in Matagalpa, my home city, seeing even well into the 1990s houses that were still strong with bullet holes and hadn't been rebuilt. Yeah, that that's still pretty fresh in my memory. And then, you know, well, among the the biggest questions I ask myself is these images are they're necessary to get the word out as to what's happening? but it, it for me it's also conflictive to see you know for example there was a photograph by a new york times reporter of of a family that had unfortunately been killed by uh, mortar shells and the photographer captures that moment in you know in a minute after this family is killed and you know capturing that the death of the, of those people and, and and that pain that they experienced and sharing that out there's there's for me a conflict of not wanting to see that, you know, not not wanting to 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 be seeing somebody's final moments captured in, on on video or a photograph, but then also balancing that out with the need to get the word out that this is happening because without those images we wouldn't know that this is going on. So uh, I do feel I need to respond to that, and and uh, actually one of the pieces in in the show I did I was able to produce it digitally. A couple of days before the show went up, and it's about the war in Ukraine. So there you'll see uh, one of the works is newspaper covers from around the world from the first days of the fighting in Ukraine. Uh, and I just felt I need to respond to that because it—you know—it was again, once again, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, this is happening again.
0: Artist Eddie Lopez, assistant professor of art at Bucknell University in Lewisburg speaking with us about his life and work in connection with the current exhibition at the Haas Gallery at Bloomsburg University, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, a solo exhibition by Eddie A. Lopez, now through April 12th. On Tuesday, April 12th, there will be an artist's reception from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., and an artist talk at 1 p.m. To learn more about Eddie Lopez and his work, you can find him at eddyalopez.com, eddyalopez.com. The show is tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, a solo exhibition by Eddie A. Lopez at the Haas Gallery at Bloomsburg University. It opened on March 3rd and is running through April 12th with an artist reception on the 12th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. and an artist talk At 1 p.m. For more information, EddieAlopez.com.